Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. All right. Well, I don't want to take a lot of time today. Um, so I told Janet to come up and start playing the keys in five minutes. So, yeah. I don't feel very prophetic today, so don't take that to mean anything. But um, I tell you what, I just, I just want to give you a really simple gospel message this morning that I'm feeling really passionate about. And uh, it's called, the title of the message today is, If He Is For Us. Everyone say, If He Is For Us. Exactly, Chell. Nice and slow, like I said. Everybody else rushed, but you slowed it down. Good job, buddy. That's the way it is. Now, if he is for us is a quote, a partial quote from the Bible. Anybody know what chapter of the Bible we are referring to with if he is for us? Anybody want to take a stab? Take a guess? There's only 66 books, so if you each, who said that? Romans? You Googled it, didn't you? Ah, perfect. He didn't have to Google it. He knew. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to talk today. And if you want to open your Bible or your iPad or your iPhone to Romans chapter 8, now would be a great time to do it. And um, if he is for us, Romans 8 is one of the great theological writings uh, from the Apostle Paul. It's, it's not that one passage of Scripture really should be greater than another. It's just certain passages, I think, relate so importantly, so they're so key to our understanding of our journey. And, uh, and that's why I say that. They're all amazing, but Romans chapter 8 stands out a bit because of the number of catchphrases we use in it. And quite often we do use these catchphrases like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Who's heard that before? That Romans chapter 8, that was a good one. We, and we use it, right? When somebody kind of messes up, we come alongside and say, hey, it's okay, man. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Or maybe you have to tell yourself in the mirror. Uh, another one is the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. That's also Romans chapter 8. Who's heard that one before? The spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. That's one. Uh, of course, we've already alluded to this, but if God is for us, who can be against us? That's also Romans chapter 8. And how about this one? Nothing can separate us from God's love. That's a Romans chapter, and that's just four. There's actually more one-liners we could pull. But in the church today, especially in our church, we actually talk about these kinds of things. We make reference, we quip these, actually. We, we kind of just fling them off like it's a, a, a card in a deck of cards all the time. We're always throwing these out there, and they're all true. They're all wonderful truths. But I'm excited today because I want to, I want to open this up, and we don't have time to go through the entire book of Romans chapter 8. Okay, th- th- that chapter is intense, it's long. So what I want to do is I'm going to give you the cliff note summary of the first 30 verses. Okay, everyone say 30 verses. Okay, th- 30 verses, that's a lot. Like some of you would not read 30 verses in 30 days. Oops. Oops. But some of you would. And what I would encourage you to do after you hear this message today is just spend some time this week in Romans chapter 8. It'll mess you up in a really good way. So here's Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. Basically, they say this. There is no condemnation for those in Christ because the Spirit of Jesus is living us and has freed us from the power of sin. We could not do this for ourselves as the law of Moses clearly pointed out. God then sent Jesus to deliver us from sin with the same level of physical ability to overcome sin that you and I have. 
That's the first part. So I need to read it again. I don't want you to miss the summary. We could not do it for ourselves as the law of Moses plainly pointed out. So God sent Jesus to deliver us from the sin of the world with the same level of physical ability that you and I possess. In other words, Jesus wasn't a superhero when he came in the, in the flesh. He came in the flesh, literally in the flesh. Normal, like us. All right? In doing so, he did once and for all what was necessary to both satisfy the justice demanded by the law of Moses and allowing us at the same time to have a right relationship with God through the person of the Holy Spirit. It then goes on to say, sinners think about sinning. Everyone say, sinners think about sinning. Sinners think about sinning. In fact, sinners like thinking about sinning. It's a bit of a tongue twister. All right? Sam sins sinfully by the seashore, right? It's, it's hard. But sinners like to think about singing. But those who have the Holy Spirit living in them, they don't think about that because having him causes us no longer to be subject to the will of the flesh. Rather, we can choose to think about the things that please God. Basically, thinking about sin leads to death, and thinking about what God likes leads to life and peace. And by the way, your sin nature hates God, always has hated God, and it always will hate God, so the sin nature or the basic human nature can never please God. Now, if we were going to bust this out in the verses we've gone through so far, we would be 20 minutes into the message. But you're only two minutes into the message. Somebody say amen. All right, read this for yourself. Read this for yourself. Now, that it matters, not that it matters for a Jesus follower, because if the Spirit of God lives in you, you're not controlled by your sin nature, but you're controlled by the Spirit of God. Your sin nature and physical body are a total wreck, but God raised Jesus, and so he will also raise you and me up by that same power, which is found in a relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. This is, the, this is what Romans 8 is saying. I'm just, I'm just compressing it for you so we can get more into the time that we have. Because of all that we have talked about this morning so far, you don't have to listen to your sin nature anymore. But you can be led by the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Jesus, which represents His nature in this world. You didn't get a relationship with the Holy Spirit so that you would be afraid of God being something that you're not. You got the Holy Spirit so that you could, by adoption, legally call God your grace daddy. I thought that would get more of a reaction, honestly. Not that God is limited only to being a grace daddy, as if someone who should be taking, taken advantage of. He not only adopted us as children, but we are adopted as children in a way that makes it as if we were always his child. This is a legal standing that you and I have with the creator of all that is. Not only are you adopted children, but you're adopted in a way that allows you to be a receiver of the greatest inheritance. And now this is where it gets tough in Romans chapter 8. Jesus suffered, and so you will suffer. It actually says that. 
So if we are like him or if we are with him in the resurrection, so we will be with him in his suffering. Read it for yourself. We don't suffer like he did, but in a way we suffer alongside him, never forgetting that we belong to him no matter what. Now besides whatever suffering we might face, it's nothing compared to the glory that God has in store for us at the end of our time here on earth. All creation from the stars in their respective galaxies to the trees and the very grass we walk on throughout this summer are longing for the day when the curse of sin is completely lifted off of everything that has been created and fell because of man's initial sin. No blade of grass ever wanted sin to rule over creation. We all from stars to galaxies to trees to grasses to cows and puppy dogs. We all, as creation, want to be delivered from the curse of sin. The power of sin is broken, and so is the penalty of sin. But one day, and hopefully soon, the presence of sin will also be erased by the power of the cross. We hope for it because it hasn't happened yet. You see, the Bible's teaching that you can't hope for something that you see. You can only hope for that which is not seen, right? Kids, have you ever peeked at a Christmas present before? Admit it. Put your hand up. Hallie, I know you have. Mm, not paying attention either in church, are you? Ah, I'm just teasing you, sweetie. I'm totally teasing. Who's ever peeked at a Christmas present? Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that that robs some joy from the discovery on the day? I, I know. If I figure it out, if I figure out what I'm getting, it kind of steals some joy. Why? Because there is great life found in hope. And when you remove hope, whether it's by some, simply desolating everything that hope could stand for, or whether you remove hope because you already get a sneak peek of what's coming, you lose some of the joy. So what God is saying by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, in summary is that the very best things are yet to come and you can't even begin to imagine and part of what makes it so great is that you can only hope for it you can't see it. You see, you and I can never imagine we can't envision a world without sin and that's what Romans chapter 8 is talking about. It's talking about a world totally removed from the knowledge, from the isolation, from the perspective of sin having ever stained it. All because of Jesus. Our friend, the Holy Spirit, helps us when we're too weak to carry on, too weak to pray. In fact, he doesn't even wait for us to feel weak, but rather helps us to pray by praying through us. Now, what does he pray for us? He prays and helps us to be in the center of God's will. Because God does all this, we know that everything, everything that we experience, everything we know, everything we walk through, we can know because of the Word of God that he is working all things together for the good of those who love God. Now this infers a problem that if we are not people who love God, God is not able to work it for our good. So it's important if you're here this morning and that you don't know Jesus yet, if you want to get in on this little, this little 
tidbit of truth, this vision of hope that we're talking about, it's very simple. You must become a follower of Jesus, which means to bend your will to him. But when we love God, he's working all things together in a way that will actually serve us best at the end of his plan. You see, he has it all figured out. He has it all under his control. And the devil might make a move, but God is so many moves ahead that you can't begin to count the number of moves ahead he is. He's got this. He chose us. He predestined us. He called us simply so that we could become like Jesus, because when we are like Jesus, when we become like the Son of God, we move into the place of relationship with God. He did it so that that good and right relationship with Him could be restored, but not only for it to be restored, but so that also He could glorify us. I want you to understand the twist in the plot of the story in God's eyes here. Adam and Eve were created without sin, yes? They were created without sin. The world was without sin until Adam and Eve chose to sin. So Adam and Eve lived in a time where they did not know the presence of sin, they did not know the penalty of sin, and they did not know the power of sin. Jesus comes to right all those wrongs and brings us to this point today where we're having this conversation, where we are delivered from the power of sin and we're delivered from the penalty of sin, yet we live in the presence of sin. I want to tell you, Adam and Eve were never glorified. That's something God has reserved in the perfection of his plan for you and I. When people question the validity of God's heart, when they question the the, the ability of his moral character to justify leading man or creating man to fall simply so that he could save him, it's much more than that. You see, man had to be created and man had to fall so that he could be rescued, set free, sanctified, and ultimately, like no other creature ever has before, become glorified. And the church needs to understand something, that the process of glorification is what we're talking about in the book of Romans chapter 8. Now this gets me a little bit excited because we're not simply talking about the same old Sunday school story that you grew up with. We're talking about the revelation of God which says Jesus comes and does all this for us, not only so that we can call him Grace Daddy, not only so that we can have a relationship, but so that we can be just like him. Perfect. Now, I know we're probably not going to make perfection yet. I mean, I'm close, but I'm not. Some of you are probably closer than me to perfection, but you're not either. So regardless of where we are in perfection, we get to hold to this future vision of glory. God loves you so much, not only does he want to save you, he wants to glorify you. you, Can you even begin to understand what that means this morning, that God wants to glorify you? He predestined, he called, he saved so that he can glorify. Romans chapter 8, read it for yourself. And that's just the summary of the first 30 verses. 
we got to say all that. I, I, I sat there this morning finishing this message, and I'm like, how the heck do I get all that so that I can get to this? And that's what I came up with. I'm just going to shoot you full of holes with my best interpretation of 30 verses of Holy Scripture in some words that allow me to get through it really quick. I wanted to do that because it brings us to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. And today is a change. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation as opposed to the NASB because I liked a couple of the words a little bit better. But here's what it says in Romans chapter 8, 31, and this is where Tyler's going to begin to put some stuff on the screen. This is what it says. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? Now, what wonderful things are we talking about? We're talking about all of the wonderful things that just happened in verses 1 through 30, which ultimately is what? God saves us, he calls us, he sets us free, he gives us the Holy Spirit, he gives us life where we once were dead. He does all these things, he's working it all together for our good. Why? So that ultimately we can be like Jesus and ultimately we can be glorified with Christ. That's a gift. My wife can make me feel happy. She can make me feel sad sometimes too, but she mostly makes me feel happy. She makes me feel good. She, she really likes my mustache right now, which I don't like at all, but I'm keeping it because she's like, woo-hoo-hoo, I like that mustache. And you know what, when it comes down to it, I don't really care as much about what I think about me as my wife cares about me. And this is not about what we think about us, but what Jesus thinks about us. I can't get over the fact that Jesus actually wants to glorify us. We glorify him. We get it's all glory belongs to God. Glory is for him. God's, God's intent, God's plan has always been to glorify the bride of Christ, the church. That's you and me. So all of these wonderful things, what can we say about such wonderful things as these? Well, I'm going to start by saying, if God's for us, I guess nobody can stand against us. And we trivialize that sometimes in the church. You see, it's in the context of this whole chapter, this, this, this exploded understanding of what God is actually trying to do in the world that Paul writes that question. It's the context of his story. Paul, who was killing Christians for sport, running them down, hunting them like dogs, having them put to death, because it seemed like a good idea at the time to him. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He has a life-altering encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. He spends years having training done, having his circuits reprogrammed in his life in the house of some believers. And then he he gets set out into his ministry. You see, it's in the context of his story that he shares this with the church in Rome. And it's interesting to me that this is the first question in a series of questions he then asks in light of verses 1 through 30. The first question, well, what can we say about such wonderful things as this? I guess if God is for us, nobody can be against us? Yeah, that's a good summary. If God has done all of this for you and I at his good pleasure, not just so that we can be restored to him, but so that we can be glorified like him, not so that we can become God, but so that we can share in his glory. Can you even begin to understand? We've talked a lot about the name and the nature of God. Can you even begin to imagine when you truly begin to reflect his nature? Man, I'd be a way better husband, 
way better father, way better pastor. Heck, I'd even be a better driver if I could have the full nature of God crammed into my chest and head. It's a question that he then answers. So what can we say about this? Romans 8.32, he says this. He said, since God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, won't he give us everything? That's why he comes up with the question slash answer. Well, then, if God's for us, who can be against us? Because if God was willing to give Jesus his only begotten, which means God carved out of himself a man to walk this earth, That's what the word begotten means. It doesn't mean God made a baby. It means God took himself and incarnated himself in the person of Jesus. If he was willing to give us that, what won't he give us? Well, nothing. He'll give us everything because he gave us everything. Then there's this other question that he asks. In Romans 8.33, Who dares to accuse whom God has chosen as his own? Now this is where I wanted to get real for you this morning because most people who are trying to follow Jesus wrestle with this thought on a daily basis. I feel accused. I feel trampled. I feel put down. I feel like something's really against me. I can't say what. I don't know what. I don't know how to express what I'm feeling. But I know I feel like someone is accusing me. And yeah, his name is Satan. He is called the accuser of the brethren. And he is constantly flinging flaming arrows at your brain, at your mind, at your psyche, at your emotion, at the seat of who you are to try and catch you on fire with hell. That's what he's trying to do all the time. So he asks this rhetorical question, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? And then he answers the question with this, no one can accuse us. For God himself has given us right standing with him. So when you bend your will to Jesus, when you become a Jesus follower, and you are, it's not about how you're working, it's about how you're actually bending your will, how you're listening to the Holy Spirit rather than your sinful nature. But when you're working to listen to the Holy Spirit and ignoring your sin nature, no one can accuse you. Because you bear the mark of sonship. God says I'm okay, what higher court is there to condemn me? There's not. There's not. There's not a higher court. There's not a higher authority. So if the highest authority says I'm free, then guess what? I'm free. And he says, as the highest authority in everything that is, that I am not guilty, then I am not guilty. And I know that can be hard for us to get our head around. This is not a la-di-da grace message. Go ahead, leave church, and sin all you want because somehow grace will make it okay. That's not what this is about at all. It's about the reality of who you can become when you choose to put your sin nature to death and choose to listen to the Spirit of God who lives inside of you. Then he asks another question, Romans eight thirty four. Who then will condemn us? So we deal with the accuser. But then who can condemn us? No one can condemn us 
For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. You see, even if God wanted to punish you, he cannot. Hear hear these words. Even if God wanted somehow, if his desire was bent and he wanted to punish you, he could not because Jesus took on the punishment for sin. All of the punishment that was coming, it went on Jesus and God cannot punish you for what Jesus was punished for. It's not like when you got caught after your brother got a spanking when you were a kid and your mom or dad was like, oh, you still don't get away. It's not how it works in God's economy. In God's economy, it works this way. No, that one was the sacrifice, and this is mercy. This was mercy. The most profound memory I have with my children, I don't remember which one it was, so it's kind of funny that I call it the most profound memory, but I believe it was Jake and and or Logan at the same time. And they had done something wrong, and they were quite little, so they were at a place of needing to understand the heart of God. And so we encountered this horrible sin that they committed. Horrible, evil, wicked sin. I don't even remember what it was. And God doesn't remember what yours are either, by the way. He separates himself from from holding it against you. I think one of the boys had punched or bit or kicked the other. And there were tears. And I've never, ever spanked my children with a belt. I I just haven't making any more of a statement than that by saying that. But that day I took out my belt. And I never had for a second any intent of giving either one of those boys a slap with that belt. But I knew it was the only way I could prove the point to them. So I sat them down in my room. I scared the living tarnation out of them by being all as big and as grouchy as I could possibly be because I was trying to show them wrath. And then we got to the point where punishment needed to be delivered. And whoever the offending child was, I handed him the belt. And I held out my hand, and I said, I want you to hit my hand as hard as you can. And of course, he wouldn't do it. He's like, I know what will happen if I hit you, Dad. You're going to hit me back, and you're way bigger than See, they had a hard time doing it, but I, I actually made my child hit my hand with the belt more than once and then this most beautiful moment got to come out of that where I got to explain to my sons and now that's exactly what mercy is and that's exactly what Jesus does for us and I'm sharing this with you so that you can understand that when it comes to condemnation no one can condemn a Christian because Jesus already took on all the condemnation for himself and God cannot punish me for what he has already punished Jesus for. Which was every sin that had been committed in the past and every sin that could be committed in the future. It's amazing. Who will condemn us? No one. And then he asks another question. Romans 8.35 And this is the one we become familiar with, but unless you're going to understand Romans 8 in the fullness of its context, I think you're always going to be missing something. 
Romans 8:34 or sorry 8:35 says, "Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love?" Does it mean now this is what's important? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? For as the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are like sheep being slaughtered. Now here's the Old Testament tie back. Sheep were slaughtered for what? Sin. They were slaughtered for the sin of the people, for the sin of the nation, for the sin of a household, for the sin of an individual. Sheep were being slaughtered. And you know, you're not ever going to be the first person to ask God when you're in this moment of calamity or persecution or hunger or destitution or danger or, or you're under the threat of death, whether it's someone's holding a gun on you or whether you've been diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't matter wherever you find yourself in the spectrum of trial. We all ask this question. Well, maybe, not maybe, but I must have done something wrong. And God is trying to teach me a lesson. I think we need to have a clear understanding on who God is and what God does. God does not need to bring calamity on sinful people because sin already has a penalty. It's already there. It's done. It will happen. We've often shared this. If I drive in the wrong lane on a highway for long enough, eventually I will pay for it. So when we're outside of what's right, we are at risk. But where we really run into trouble is when we're running in the right lane where we're supposed to be and we're doing the things we're supposed to do, and all of a sudden trouble, calamity, destitution, uh, a lack of money, whatever we've talked about this morning even is interesting, all falls on us at once, and we all of a sudden go, well, God must be mad at me. Remember, God can't be mad at you for sin because he already punished Jesus for your sin. And I want you to understand that we all know that sin has a consequence, and the consequence of sin ultimately is death. But we have to realize something important, and that is being in the presence of sin needs to become something that is rather irrelevant for us as the children of God. What I mean to say by that is that we need to stop projecting onto ourselves guilt because we find ourselves in a desperate situation. And you, and, you, and you might be not thinking in this headspace this morning, but I promise you, in the last couple of weeks, for sure, every single person in this room has been dealing with self-condemnation. Because we do this, it's one of the baits of the enemy that we fall for. And we need to realize that being in the presence of sin does not mean we are paying the penalty of sin. In fact, the presence of sin has always been a problem for everybody in the group. How do you feel for the poor sheep? He's just out there eating grass and pooping. He's living his life, getting fatter, making baby sheep. He's thinking that life is great. There's green grass, there's water, there's a shepherd who comes by and makes sure he beats the wolves around once in a while. And all of a sudden, one day, somebody grabs you by the neck 
And it's tough, kids, but kills you and sacrifices you on an altar because you sinned? No, because someone else sinned. And I want you to draw this together today in your heart and in your mind. The Bible says that if we are resurrected with Jesus, if we get to share in the life, we also have to share in some suffering. This is the suffering he's talking about. Because of the nature of the presence of sin, sometimes, often even, I have to suffer through the penalty of someone else's sin. Now, I'm not saying this to give the church the excuse to say, well, it's not my fault. It must be because Brian sinned that we're all having this problem now. That's not the heart of what we're saying. <clears throat> but I want us to understand that this is the nature of living in the presence of sin. The rain, the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. And guess what? When it doesn't rain for years, it doesn't rain for the just or the unjust either. We kind of all get grouped together when calamity comes. And what I want you to understand this morning is you need to stop self-projecting condemnation and death on you. Because it's not your place. God cannot punish you for what he's already punished Jesus for. And this kind of sucks. It kind of sucks that I have to live in the presence of other people's wrong decisions and sins, doesn't it? You ever been in the classroom and you know there's that one kid in your class that's always in trouble? And then for some reason, the teacher makes everybody pay for that one kid's wrong? Who's been there? Come on. Yeah, all the adults could put up your hand too because this is not a new story. That sucks when that happens, but that's real life. Real life is that the consequences of my sin can affect everyone around me, not just me. And the consequences of your sin affect everyone around you, not just you. So what we should do with that really is hate sin a lot more than we do. I want you to understand that this is exactly, precisely, specifically what Jesus did. Jesus came and lived in the presence of sin, totally without sin himself, but became subject to the penalty, and the power, and the presence of sin for us. And from time to time, we're going to identify with him in that suffering. So what do we do with that kind of suffering? Whatever the reason for our suffering and struggle, we have to keep our eyes on what really matters. And what really matters is that I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. I am blessed and highly esteemed, and I am favored by the creator of the universe. Jesus loves me. And he loves me more than anyone else. And you know what? You can have the exact same perspective and not be wrong. Jesus loves you more than anyone else. Whatever the reason for our struggle, for our suffering, for our trial, what really matters, what really matters is that we are his. He won and we win. That's what's at stake. That's what, that's what you need to take away in every moment of your life. See, Paul and Silas... We're sitting in jail, rotting away. Why? Because they preached the gospel. 
They were living in a time where the presence of sin was huge in their community. And so preaching the gospel back in those days got you scourged and tossed in prison quite often. As Paul and Silas are sitting in the presence of the prison, they're sitting because of not their sin, right? It wasn't because of their sin they were in jail. It was because of the sin of the community, the sin of everyone around them. They are now sitting in chains, in chains, in jail, in bondage. And Paul and Silas do something brilliant. In spite of their circumstance, they choose to praise the Lord. Everyone say, in spite of their circumstances, they praise the Lord. Now this is why the Apostle Paul can write this in the book of Romans, because he lived this. So they're riding in jail, and they begin to praise the Lord. Not because they were in jail, but because they just loved Jesus. So they begin to praise the Lord. What happens? Something begins to shake it. And as they're praising the Lord, the bonds, the fetters, the chains fall off their hands, and the doors of the prison open up all by themselves. Now, that's a bad day when you're the prison guard. How do you explain that? You don't. And here, now, get, now just understand this for a second. Most of us, if we're in a place of persecution, trial, frustration, you know, we just feel like God has abandoned us and we're here and this sucks and I don't like this situation. I don't want to be here. This is stupid. I don't know if I did something wrong or someone else did something wrong, but this just stinks. When God springs the door open, most of us are like, woohoo, and we run out of that place as fast as we can. Not Paul and Silas. <laughs> they stayed in jail. They stayed in the place of suffering. And because they stayed in the place of suffering, when they came to check and see how many prisoners were going to escape, so basically the prison guy's like, so how many times are they going to cut my head off for this? Which is a horrible day at work. He gets the reassurance of, hey, we're all here. Not only are we all here, but everybody will be getting saved up in this place. And because of their willingness to honor God in the place of pain, because of their willingness to honor God with sacrifice in the place of suffering, not only were they given the ability to be set free, but when they stayed for a moment in that bondage, upon reflecting of what God was doing, the prison guard and his entire household get saved. You see, we tend to look at suffering and we either blame it on ourselves or we blame it on everyone else and then we run away from it at the first opportunity. But what Romans 8 is teaching us is that we ought to press in to suffering. We ought to press into difficult situations because in the difficult situations where God is going to be glorified the most and in a difficult situation is where God is going to glorify us the most. You see, what God wants to do in your suffering, what God wants to do in your difficulty and your trial is make his nature to manifest in you. He wants to take his nature and he wants to make it push through you and pulse through you with a beat like it's never done before. He wants to reveal something greater in you to the people around you that will draw hearts to his. So you need to remember who you are in every moment of trial and suffering and persecution and desolation. Why? Because you might find yourself sitting in the hospital hooked up to a machine that is trying to treat your cancer and the person beside you is who God is after. 
What if you get hit this week in your car and it wrecks your week because somebody dinged your brand spanking new truck? Well, what if you have the heart and mind of Christ because God wanted to put you in a place of trial and suffering and frustration so that that guy could find Jesus? What if God wants to take the mess that your marriage feels like right now or the mess that your kids are right now and use it to glorify himself and glorify you and lead someone else to a relationship with him? God's business is about saving the lost. And once we are found, we are simply tools and instrument in his hand to do his perfect will. All of this is found in Romans chapter 8 if you press in and reach for it. I am seated with him in heavenly places regardless of what my circumstances in this flesh say. I am in a place of fellowship and peace regardless of what my physical circumstances say. Why? Because he prepares for me a table in the presence of my enemies. That's what he did with Paul and Silas. Right there in the prison, Jesus comes in in his spirit and shakes the place and lays out a feast of fellowship and peace with Paul and Silas. And that's what God wants to do in you and wants to do in me. Despite all these things, Despite everything we go through, the takeaway has to be this. Romans 8.37, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loves us. What can we say about all these things? What can we say despite of all these things? Overwhelming victory is ours. Overwhelming victory is yours on the other side of cancer or illness or divorces or children going sideways. Overwhelming victory is what belongs. It is the heritage. It is the inheritance of the chosen, the elect, the predestined, who is anyone who accepts Jesus. Today, I hope you can leave this place with this conviction in your heart. I hope that in looking at the evidence in Romans chapter 8 and in reading through parts of what we have this morning and in reading through this week as you leave this place that you can be convinced of what the Apostle Paul became convinced of. What is he convinced of? Romans 8, 38 and 39. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life nor angels nor demons. Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth or below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
If we don't have a church of people who is convinced that the love of God for them is so profoundly powerful, we will never win people to Jesus. And I need you to become convinced by God's word. I need you to become convinced by the Holy Spirit who lives in you. That you are way more than you are because of Jesus. I need you to believe that on the other side of your trial is God's perfect plan revealed that will be bigger in glory than anything you could ever imagine. It makes me chuckle when I read it. Paul also wrote this. This present and light affliction. This present and light affliction. Now knowing the story of Paul, you understand that nothing he went through was light. He shipwrecked, ultimately executed as martyr, uh, brokenness, demonic attack constantly in his life scourged, imprisoned. No wife to speak of. That's probably the worst thing. This guy who went through a lot of stuff says this present life of fiction doesn't even compare with the future weight of glory. In other words, the weight of what God has at the end of my life is far, far more valuable than what I can see here. And so we lean in. And so we press on. And so we run as if not only to finish the race, but we run as if to win the race. Regardless of your circumstance, regardless of the place you find yourself in, he's got this. And Jesus in you will absolutely Outshout and overshadow whatever circumstance you might find yourself in today or tomorrow or in your past. As you stand, because I want to pray for you this morning. Jesus, I thank you for your cross. I thank you for your heart and I thank you for all of the things that I can't even begin to understand about how much you actually love me. And Father, it only seems to get exponentially more difficult as I think for every person in this room and every child of God that is on this planet today. God, I can't think of how big your love is for us. It is beyond my ability to describe. And Jesus, today I pray that in the hearts of every person in this room, that you would come and you would do a new work right now. Holy Spirit, that you would begin to bring to life and bring to our attention the reality of who we are in you. Father, I pray that condemnation would begin to fall off of people's hearts today in Jesus' name. Lord, I pray that the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the gentle guidance of the Holy Spirit would come in and bring correction where we are out of alignment.
Lord, we know that you discipline those that you love. And so with appreciation and thanks, we can accept your discipline. But Lord, help us to see the difference. Jesus, I pray for the hearts in this room who have long believed that somehow you were angry with them and punishing them when you've already punished Jesus for our sin. Lord, we repent of that thinking and we open our hearts to discover today who you really are, that you are not angry with us, that you are not wrathful with us, for your anger and wrath was visited upon your son. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to see who we are, who you're calling us to be, who you've created us to be, and that we would begin to walk in the identity that you have announced over us, that we are your sons and daughters, that we are your predestined, that we are your elect, that we are the ones you've chosen. Change our thinking, Lord. Change our mentality, change our ideology, change how we see this world. Help us to rejoice in our trials knowing that what you're doing in the bigger picture is going to be better than anything we could have ever imagined. Jesus, build our faith. Build our faith to believe that you can actually do that. Amen. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.